Where are the democracy-minded Republicans today as Donald Trump seeps to undermine democracy? That's the first thing we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Wernowski and Jane Cahoon. Happy Friday. Hello. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. (laughs) I mean, I started to get excited about it because I've had like a two day work week. So, I mean, I'm dying. <laughs> that just means you concentrated five days of work. In right, I've had right. a five day work week that feels like about eight days. <laughs> yeah. Man, you're right, Jane. The news hit Monday and Woo. we have not been, we've been on a sprint ever since. So, let us begin. Should Rob Portman, the Ohio senator who has backed President Donald Trump's legal challenges to the election, Come out strongly today to denounce what the president is doing to undermine the democracy. Chris Ranowski, this one is is frightening. It's there's a good argument to be made that the president is committing treason. He is trying to convince the governments to throw out the will of the voters and put in people that will do his bidding. It's got to be criminal. The, the Republicans came out when Donald Trump challenged the election in courts and says, well, he has the right to do that. Mike DeWine did it. Rob Portman did it. Now he's crossing a line, summoning the, the Republican leadership of Michigan to the White House today to convince them to throw out the will of the voters. Where is Rob Portman? Well, and I, I mean, I think we, I would challenge the, the notion that the president has the right to do this. You can, you can do this to a degree. But at well, some when, point, when you're when you say this, filing, what this are you talking filing, about? Like all of these lawsuits. I mean, they've lost what, like 30 some lawsuits at this point. And you have to wonder, like, at, at some point, is somebody going to say these are frivolous? I mean, in, in any other aspect of the law, if, if you were going into court with the claims that some of these attorneys are going into these courts with and judges, I mean, I mean, if you read the transcripts of these, you can tell some of these judges are very exhausted. Even a Trump appointed judge basically called one of these cases ridiculous right. so okay but so but, and but but what we're that's a different so, and, arena, and, and, man but, you but know. people but I'm, I'm getting to the point here is that 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 portman and mcconnell and and a lot of the republicans in the senate and in the house have, have sort of hidden behind this notion that this is the president's right and it's given them an out from actually having to criticize the president no, no but the and, game and, has changed now man the, right so so wait, forget the courts what's happening today is unprecedented right you know and that that's what i'm asking about is where are they now this they should be shaken to their core that our democracy is under siege by the white house it's like a bad 1960 spy novel right and it's chilling and it's it's you know and i'm sure they'll they'll go and they'll speak off the record and and anonymously and and not have the courage to stand up and say this is wrong and we shouldn't do this. You know, I mean, you've had the regular, you know, the sassy and, uh, you know, who else? Collins and, and Romney have all said, you know, we'll work with Joe Biden. We'll confirm his cabinet. We'll do all this. But, you know, I mean, the rest of the Republican Party is is sort of in lockstep behind the president on this. And, you know, it, it'll, it's be, a coup. it'll be you're you're in a lockstep in what it, you could legitimately now call a coup. Jane, Kuhn, let me ask you. If Rob Portman continues to 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 be mealy mouthed and not say anything, if Mike DeWine does not take a firm stand to confirm what he had said all through, that when it's all said and done and the legal challenges are done, it's over. What will won't that apply in their reelection runs? I mean, won't candidates running against them say 
that when push came to shove, when the time came to stand up to defend our Constitution, these men stood mute? Of course they will. Whether that'll resonate two years from now when they're up for re-election, who knows? I mean, people have people have short memories, but but of course it's going to be an issue. And, you know, especially with somebody like Rob Portman, who's who's right there in the Congress and, you know, he's kind of got a history of just waiting for everybody else to come out before he then comes out, you know, and says, you know, takes a stance. So it's yeah, I think it will haunt it's, them. But I mean, and, I, and, what I'm what I can't believe is is that this is not leading to a crescendo of denunciation. Is it because of all all of the Trump supporters are in their social chat rooms in their echo chambers and somehow believe this is okay? I mean, this is this is ripping apart the fabric of the Constitution. It's the fear the founding fathers had is if you get somebody in the presidency of bad faith. Will they use the power of the presidency to basically uh, overthrow the government? I mean, I I don't I don't think they have any sense that this is going to succeed. I think they're just kind of this is kind of a thumb in the eye on the way out. You know, I mean, I think they're kind of stripping the place of the copper as it would be and really just trying to. I guess to use the parlance of, of the modern internet age, they're trying to own the libs one more time before they they lose their stranglehold on the the executive branch. I don't know. I, I, I mean, w- w- would they stand by if he took out a gun and shot somebody in the head? I mean, on Fifth Avenue, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're you're crossing a line here. This is yeah. a conspiracy to undermine the election. This is not legal challenges. But what's, I, what's what's good, and I think what is what is is heartening. I think what's so frustrating about this is is and and we talked about this before the podcast is knowing that it's probably going to fail, but understanding fundamentally what it has done to damage our faith in the election, in our institutions and in our government. And I think that's going to be really difficult to repair because, you know, they have willfully lied and misled voters about the honesty of these elections. And these have been, you know, this was a big election, huge turnout and almost no evidence of widespread fraud at all. And, and it was trouncing. I mean, right. And, you know, and, and here you have them stalling the transition, which puts people's lives at risk because of this pandemic. And, and they're in yeah, it. They're I know, not but allowing you're people off to, the point. I, I, the, I forget him. The point is, I mean, look, these these guys, these Republicans that are not speaking up, their dads or their grandfathers fought in World War Two. Likely those guys would be turning over in their grave to see this happening now, because this is what the fight was about. It was preserving freedom, preserving democracy. We have a president who has taken the unbelievable step to undermine an election. Mm -hmm. Where is the outrage? The whole future of the country is at stake. You can't just say, I don't think it'll work. The president is the guy orchestrating the assault. But these, you know, these are craven cowards and they are going to be craven cowards today. They're going to be craven cowards on January 21st. It is it is it has been the same story my whole life and and probably your whole life for a lot of these people in these in these elected positions. They I wouldn't have thought this would be possible. I would have thought that when it came to the basic fabric of who we are, that they would stand up. 
I'm just stunned this is happening today. Well, some of them are like aiding and abetting, like Lindsey Graham, who (laughs) we now know has talked to election officials, you know, trying to uh, get something done there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because I think everybody has sort of woken up to the notion that this country is, you know, our our governance is fragile and and, and, you know, and frankly, we've all come to it at different times. You know, I mean, you ask, you know, you ask an African-American friend, you know, when did your faith in our government get shattered? And they're going to say probably most of my life. And, you know, and you talk to us and you go, well, you know, we grew up with these faiths and these institutions. But, you know, I mean, there's always been corruption. There's always been. But this is, you know, this yeah, is this is, is this is a moment. This is this is a you know, I said this to you the other night. I said, I feel like we're living in something that we're going to spend the rest of our lives marveling about and talking about and analyzing because it's big and it's and it's shaken this country in a way that I don't think yeah. has really ever happened. OK, we got to move on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is this looking like the worst week yet for coronavirus cases in Ohio? How many counties are red and did one finally turn purple? Jane Cahoon, we don't know what the numbers are, right? Because there's 12,000 cases that they can't figure out, but it's bad. I don't think anyone would argue with you if you said it it might be the worst week, but you're right. We don't know how bad the numbers are. We had 7,787 cases reported Thursday, but it's not the whole picture. Governor Mike DeWine explained that these numbers are missing, that they've got a backlog of like 12,000 tests that uh, these rapid antigen tests uh, that they need to go back and double check and confirm whether they're really positives or not. And you got to believe a good chunk of them are going to turn out to be positive. So so who knows? But uh, as far as the alert map, yeah, that's another grim picture. 72 of the 88 counties are at red alert, and Franklin County has the uh, distinction of becoming the first county to go to the worst level of purple. Uh, And every Northeast Ohio... Let let me interrupt you there, because I'm confused by how they could go purple, because I thought to go purple, you had to be on purple watch for a week first, and I don't think they were on purple watch, were they? I talked to Rich Exner about this, our data guy, and he said that it looked like they updated some of their data in the interim for that week. There, oh. there was no, there was no like black star on on Franklin County when it first came out last week. But I think they they looked at the metrics again or did some updates and oh. and then updated that between last week and and this week. And we didn't we didn't see that. But um, so anyway, we got uh, two, uh, three others that are on that. Uh, watch list or to go purple next week, Lake Lorraine and Montgomery counties. Um, So that's, you know, that, that comes with the warning that you should only go out for necessities, but you know, that, that kind of mirrors the advisory that we're already under here in Cuyahoga County and Franklin and Montgomery counties uh, also have that stay at home uh, advisory. But just to give you an idea of how rapid this change was, only 11 counties were on red alert at the beginning of October. You know, now we got 72. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, we've been getting seven to 8,000 cases a day, every day this week. And then to hear yesterday that, yeah, and there's another 12,000 that we're working to verify. It's like, oh, wow, okay, we are really in uncharted territory. We, we hadn't been breaking records all week, and you kept wondering why. Well, it's because they got 12,000 cases they're trying to figure out. They're also overwhelmed, right? They're sick, 
and the health department doesn't have enough people to get the job done. We're getting into that period where we're not going to be able to keep up with it. What was distressing about our story today is it said that we're going to have this numbers problem for the foreseeable future. Right. We used to post those numbers every day at two o'clock. Here's the total. And now every day we're going to say, okay, here's what they have so far, but it, but it's not the whole picture. It's frightening. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much have coronavirus cases increased in Ohio schools? All of a sudden, you'd expect this with the surge elsewhere. The surge is happening in the schools, Chris Wernowski. Give us some of the numbers to put it in perspective. Right. So... About a week ago, we were we were hovering around 1,600 student cases and about 1,096 staff cases. Um, and and the most recent report we got now is we have a, a total of 4,500 new coronavirus cases among students and staff, according to the state's weekly update, which was released on Wednesday. And um, it's expected that those numbers are going to continue to increase over the next couple of weeks, unless things change dramatically behavior-wise among people in Ohio. One of the things that this uh, these numbers sort of spurred us to look at is whether uh, any of the school districts in Cuyahoga or Summit counties have sort of upended how they're going to teach uh, after Thanksgiving break and. And really, uh, a lot of places are just sort of, sort of in a wait and see mode to, you know, I mean, they have a, a little bit of time before next week, but, but they're going to have to make some hard decisions here coming pretty soon. You know, when we say they have a little bit of time, they actually don't because right. for, for teachers to set up at home, I'm married to one. It's a nightmare. You've got to bring all your stuff back. There's a lot of stuff they use. Set up a room in your house so it looks halfway like a classroom. So leaving this until the the last. And you also have to give the students a ton of stuff. But, you know, their parents have to get a lot of stuff. So I'm a little bit surprised they're not making the decision yesterday and today so they could use the first couple of days next week to get people ready. It's a little bit irresponsible unless they're planning to keep people coming back, which is a lot irresponsible. (laughs) Is, I mean, is there any, any feeling that they want to finish the semester and then after Christmas break, make a a much more difficult decision? I I think what I, what I hear, because again, I'm married to somebody (laughs) in the education world, they, they really do want to keep the kids in school if they can, because it makes a big difference in the education. I mean, look, these are all educators. Their, their sole purpose and sole goal is to teach the kids and right. help the kids. And so I, so I, I respect the motive. Uh, and, and that's why they're, they're struggling with it. But mm-hmm. you also have a whole lot of frightened teachers that know every day they go into school, they could get exposed to it. You see that there's no substitutes. Was it Chagrin Falls? I think was the district that was advertising for substitutes because yeah. there aren't any. And if the teachers start to drop the way the rest of society does, they won't be able to teach the kids anywhere at home in school. Um, so I, I would think you would start to see the decisions, but we're not, you know, it's, I mean, not- it's, it's, it's interesting to sort of see the parallel between this and the, the medical community, because at some point, you know, a lot of these frontline medical workers are getting sick and it's like, well, you don't have anybody to tag in and do the work. And, and, and the same is going to, is you're right. The same is happening at schools. It's, you know, nobody, nobody wants to go in and substitute right now because it is, you know, it's, it's so risky. And, and yet on the other side of it, it it's, you know, our economy 
runs on the idea that that parents have a place where their kids go every day. And right. and you know, I mean, I was just talking. You know, I had a doctor's appointment this morning. I was talking to my doctor about this, and she said, "Yeah, you know, my my husband and I are both doctors. We just had a three. We have a three month old and a five year old. And you know, if if school shut down again, one of us has to quit our job. And you know why? Because the right. districts are requiring parents to. You know, some districts are are making parents sit there with their students. I mean, and so it's, you know, it, I understand the urge to try to keep schools open, but, you know, I, I hope that, you know, it's not being done at the expense of safety and, and all that stuff. So, you know, yeah, you hope, you know, it's, it's, again, it's that thing where we have to, you know, unfortunately sort of weigh the economic outcome of this because, you know, we're not willing to pay people to stay home and do all the stuff that we really should have done early on. Well, you know, there are no villains here. They're doing this for the right reason. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday who brought up something that we had actually talked about at the very beginning of the pandemic, that that the way to battle this pandemic is to get into the spirit that America was in in World War II. We're all in this together. We're all going to do sacrifice together. We're going to come together and figure it out. And, you know, we have a president that decided, I don't believe the coronavirus is a threat. There was no messaging and it's all falling apart. There's, there's talk now about, even locally, is there a way to build that spirit? Because for the next four months, we need that spirit. We know it's time limited. The vaccine's coming. But for the next four months, it's going to spread like crazy. Can we get that spirit? And, and if we got some of that spirit, then maybe there's a way to help the doctor not have to quit their job. We, we just have not had any leadership, uniform leadership to do well, it. But, you know, I mean, we've had months of our governor pleading for people to do the right thing. He's, <laughs> he's pleading for that spirit to exist. And it's, but he also you know, says, it's, Chris, that Donald Trump has done a terrific job <laughs> on the coronavirus. He's full of it, man. It's but, like, but also, again, I get it. He has to work with the president. You don't want to. But, you know, we're, we're past the point where he has to do that. The guy's not going to be the president anymore. So, you know, I feel like he could be a little more honest about what you know, the colossal failure at the federal level to, to manage and deal with this. But, but again, I think, you know, I, we're so partisan right now and everything is just so, you know, so much vitriol and, and so much anger around that. I just, it's, it's hard to put faith in, in people having faith in each other. If that, if that makes sense, I, I just, it's, it's, if it comes down to that, that's what scares me a lot is, is that like, I, I, I feel like people have shown, you know, I mean, just, just the anger that people have about wearing masks still is just, it still boggles my mind. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the story behind the bribery and extortion charges filed Thursday against, all right, what's, what's the initial Jane? PG. PG. PG Sittenfeld, <laughs> who had been an up and coming Ohio Democrat who ran for the U.S. Senate a couple of years ago. Jane Cahoon, I, when this first came out, it was it was, wow, one of the top Democrats is going down. But now that I've read what they say he did, this case is troubling. I don't based on what I've read so far, I don't think I'd convict him. What's the story? <laughs> OK, so the the complaint says that he solicited and accepted forty thousand dollars in donations to a political action committee supporting his bid for mayor. He, he's announced that he, he wants to run for mayor of Cincinnati. Um, and and these, uh, these donations were from a city developer and two 
undercover FBI agents who were posing as the developer's business partners. And they say that in exchange uh, that Sittenfeld promised to deliver the votes on city council for a, for a development project. So he's, he's pleaded not guilty. But as you said, you know, uh, we, we had another recent case where a Cincinnati city councilman was also arrested and, and uh, federally charged. But that councilman, Jeff Pastor, you know, he was accused of pocketing cash and accepting travel. And according to, you know, what they have him saying, it's like, hey, I need compensation here for my uh, official actions. You know, I mean, that his case seems much more clear. Uh, Sittenfeld, his case seems to have a little more nuance, I think. So, so he, you know, and he's accused of accepting it for his, his, you know, political action committee, not, not like putting it in his pocket for personal use. But in any event, it said that he, um, that, you know, the developer told Sittenfeld he could uh, introduce him to business partners who were these undercover agents. And in this recorded phone conversation, you know, they told Sittenfeld, um, you know, well, uh, actually, I'm sorry, Sittenfeld told them, you know, I've, I'm not sure in seven years I've, you know, I think I voted in favor of every single development deal that's been put in front of me. And, and, you know, he said, don't let these be my famous last words, but I can always get a vote from my left or from my right. Um, and, and he also said things like, you know, nothing can be illegal here. Nothing can be a quid pro quo. I know that's not what you're saying, but what I can say is I'm always super pro development. Right. Right. You know, think, so, so is that bribery and att- attempted extortion? No, uh, or, think uh, about know, it. I, so so he's he hits them up for a donation. Hey, I'm running for mayor. I want your support. And they say, well, we want you to vote for our development. And his answer is, I always vote for development. No, you know, that's no sweat. I mean, I can't promise you in exchange for the money I'm voting for your development. But look at my record. I always vote for development. How's that a crime? <laughs> Even the prosecutor See, the U.S. attorney down there seems like he knows this is weak because he said, you know, you don't always have to have the exact <laughs> words. You just have to have the concept. Yeah, he said, you know, politicians rarely offer a gotcha moment. This was the U.S. attorney, David DeVillers. Uh, he said there's rarely this gotcha moment in which politicians explicitly promise uh, official action. He said, but we don't have to prove an expressed quid pro quo. You know, I'm throwing the flag on that claim, too. We have seen no end of gotcha moments. I mean, the DeMora case, the county corruption case in Cuyahoga County had like 64 different people go down with gotcha moments. Jeff Johnson had a gotcha moment. Emmanuel Anwar had a gotcha moment. I mean, that that's just throwing smoke. We don't usually get gotcha moments. No, what you don't have here is a gotcha moment. And and look, usually in the indictment, you're loading it up. You're you're loading up the barrel, taking your shot and reading this case. It's like, man, this seems awfully unfair. To and, Chris, Mr. <laughs> and, and, and this is Chris Wernowski. I, you know, I mean, we have, I mean, you and I have been covering crime long enough where you've seen federal investigations where they have walked people right up to the line of pushing a button they think is going to blow up a bridge. And you think you tell me you can't get something a little more definitive than, you know, a sort of vague, pro- I mean, it's just weird to me to, to, to say, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of gray area, you know, well, you know, that gray area is kind of baked into our campaign finance laws. And, and so, you know, it's, again, it's one of those things where like the, 
the system sort of allows this sort of weird interpretation where more explicit and specific laws could actually make this an easier question to answer. But, but, but in this case, they say, you know, we want your vote. He goes, well, I, I mean, I, he said there can't be quid pro quo. I know you're not asking me for that. That's in effect saying, I know you're not asking me to buy my vote. But, you know, look at my record. I'm the most pro-development guy you ever saw. I, I just, I, I mean, good luck convincing a jury that he did anything wrong. I just, I question why they brought the case. It, it, it seems like it's almost like, are they going after a, a promising Democrat in Ohio? Is, is that what's really going on here? Because this is as weak a case as I've ever seen. <laughs> well, you can indict a ham sandwich, so. <laughs> yeah, but the yeah, federal it, government doesn't usually do that. Yeah. Maybe there's something we don't know here. I just, who knows? Time okay. Know. Well, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So what's the story behind 72 companies with names about farming registered at three houses in Cleveland suburbs that are not farms? Why are the people attached to them under investigation involving getting government money? Chris Ronowski, this is a really interesting one that Bloomberg broke. Right. Yeah, we got to credit Bloomberg for breaking the story, but it is fascinating uh, on its face that uh, federal prosecutors have accused this network of companies of exploiting a federal business loan and grant program designed to help agricultural businesses during the pandemic. And the feds say that a guy by the name of Zar Colin Tarley reached out to prosecutors to speak to them about the matter. Um, the story was, again, first reported by Bloomberg. Um, and said that dozens of recently incorporated businesses connected to this gentleman and his family uh, received a, a, a lot of money from the Small Business Administration's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, even though it appears none of these companies do any type of business whatsoever. Um, they incorporated and registered at least 72 companies, um, all at addresses in three, at three homes in the Cleveland area with these agricultural-themed names like Ohio almonds and peanuts and agricultural worms and fertilizer and so on. And as you can imagine, there is almost no evidence that Kalantari and his family are in the almond or worm business. Um, I don't even it, think you can grow almonds in Ohio. <laughs> I don't think you can either, which, you know, it's like, all right. Um, you know, and, and on, it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting because this is sort of emblematic of a, a bigger problem that we have when, you know, these grant and loan relief programs come out, which is you see people run this kind of, you know, and, and again, these people have not been charged or with anything at this point, but, you know, you do see this kind of grift kind of happen in, in, with a lot of these grant programs and stuff. And it doesn't necessarily get the attention that people sort of pay to when they, they scream about like government assistance fraud and stuff like that. Like we're not going to start drug testing farmers who get crop insurance when their crops fail. Um, but, but this was, you know, this was kind of, I, I grew up in a farming community and this kind of stuff happens all the time. You would see farmers like break up a parcel of land into five, you know, and they give like four parcels of land to their children and they would all collect crop insurance off of it, you know? And, and I mean, it's, you know, you see these these companies that just get started for the sake of getting government grant money, and they have no no experience in 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 responding to whatever disaster that that they're being contracted to do. And I think we're we're at the tip of the iceberg at at seeing the amount of of fraud through you know the PPP programs and 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 all of these things. You know, I think 
in the coming years, you're going to see that there was a, a, a very big nefarious cash grab that took place and, you know, kept money out of the hands of ordinary Americans who probably needed it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm going to end it there because I want to ask you guys, what do you think is going to happen today on the national scene with this budding constitutional crisis? Do you think the Michigan people show up in Washington, tell the president, no, we're not going to overdo the, the will of the voters? Do you think the governor there will have to exercise her power to put people in that will certify the vote? And this is a big moment. I think whatever is going to happen is going to ensure maximum persecution complex among the president <laughs> who is going to leave office and and, you know, grumble on every news network that'll have him on. Hey, look, man, at this if he continues down this road, he might leave office in handcuffs because this is crossing the line. I, I you know, all the people that wrote the conspiracies that this could be the way he goes months back when when it looked like Biden would win. You read it with a grain of salt. You read it like it was a bad 60s novel about government coups. But it's going that way. I mean, those people were prescient because that's what's happening. When the courts failed, he's he's trying to throw out the the will of the voters. I'm, I'm look, I'm surprised. I did not think we'd be talking about this. And it's Jane, what do you think is going to happen? I think the real unfortunate thing here is that Trump has convinced the large portion of his supporters that he won the election. I mean, it's just almost unthinkable, but I think there are a lot of people in his base who believe him. And I think that's really dangerous. I think the people in Michigan, you know, maybe he doesn't care about the consequences of what he does, or he doesn't care if what he's doing is illegal, but they might, you know, have some pause about about this before they decide to go, you know. But there is, you know, I did read a story this morning that said the majority of Republicans, even Republicans who voted for him, believe that Joe Biden is the president and that Donald Trump lost. It's again, it's every every conversation we have about this comes back to his base, and you I know, know the, I, and, the, and they're going to the and look, he's going to grift man. that base until he can until he's yeah. bled every nickel out of you know those people. You know, he's going to sell his flags, he's going to sell his hats. He's but it's gonna, not about those people; it's about the checks and balances. Where are the other leaders of this country and his party who know this is wrong? Yeah. Where are they? This is you. You can stand by until now. You can't stand by now because you're tossing the whole Constitution if you do. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, it's it's silly to to imagine that this guy who who called foul on the election that he actually won. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's <laughs> like it's hard to say, like, well, this is a surprise because he literally challenged an election that he won because he didn't win the popular vote. And that looked bad for him. And yeah, he was so, a star winner. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, again, what's so what's so frustrating about this is how predictable it was and and what's sad is that you know you put your faith in these things to be there to to catch this and we have elected leaders who who just seem nonplussed that are just like okay not doing their job all right gotta end it up thanks jane thanks chris thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the cle we will return monday with another news discussion 